All right, welcome to the conversation on TYT Network. Uh, now, we all know we're in tough times, and uh, we're a little bit worried about the country uh, falling apart and literally breaking apart. Um, it's not like we didn't try it before. Uh, so we brought on an expert here to talk about uh, whether that's a real possibility, and I get a little bit of a sense that he might not even mind. So that'll be interesting. We'll talk about that. Uh, Richard Kreitner is a contributing writer at The Nation, and he's written the book, uh, Break It Up, Secession, Division, and the Secret History of America's Imperfect Union. So obviously we, everybody knows about the Civil War, but uh, what, what other secret history do we have about efforts to break up the country before? Sure. I mean, when I got interested in the idea, obviously the first thing that we associate with secession is slavery, the Confederacy, the South, and the political right. But I quickly found that there's almost no region of the country, few states and few groups of people that haven't tried to leave at one time or another. Disunion, you know, the idea that it should all break apart was really originally a northern idea. A New England secession movement grew up under Jefferson's presidency and then nearly did break away during the War of 1812. And then similarly, the heroes of my book sort of are the New England abolitionists who wanted to secede from the Union to protest slavery and to withdraw what they saw as material support for the uh, for the institution. Um, so and I don't think that we're generally taught that. The, the, the association of slavery with the Confederacy has convinced us that it's not an available, and by us I mean the left, uh, that it's not an available option for, for our politics today. And I, I think that knowing a fuller history of the concept and all the different people who have espoused it over the years um, should disabuse us of that notion. Well, you know, that's interesting because that that uh, particular abolitionist movement, uh, I believe, proved to be wrong. So what do I mean by that? Uh, well, if they had gotten their way and the North had broken up with the South, there's some chance the South would still have slavery and there'd still be millions of African-Americans uh, enslaved. Uh, luckily, the North decided to stick together in a fight uh, and to risk uh, getting killed themselves to free the slaves. So uh, it, it kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, some folks who want to split from the Democratic Party. We're deeply frustrated with the Democratic Party, but if we split, uh, we might be leaving it to a, a worse fate. Um, so anyway, that's my editorializing there for a second. Um, now, um, I, I want to know more about the history too, but I also want to talk about today and the future. What, what's your sense of really, like, is there any chance that we would actually split the union? I think it's there's definitely a chance. I think that our odds of staying together over the next 20 to 30 years are 50-50 at best, to be honest with you. Look what's going on today already. The, there's fighting, or nearly between, there should be perhaps, between federal authorities and state and local authorities in the streets of American cities. You have a president who's essentially, you know, abdicated his responsibilities with regards to the coronavirus. You have an election that, that could be hotly, even violently contested. Um, and that's, you know, it's only 2020. <laughs> we have a long way to go. Um, could be a, a rocky decade. So I, I definitely think it's absolutely possible. There are a lot of people on, on both sides of you know the aisle um, who want to break away from the union. In, in Texas, when it looked like Hillary Clinton was going to win in 2016, there was a lot of talk about that. You know, I'm not saying that it was going to happen at the time, but then immediately afterward, when Trump won, there was in your own state of California. 
I think that this is a growing trend in American politics as it gets more and more dysfunctional. Just quickly going back to the abolitionist point, that's it's definitely possible that they would have still had slavery, but they, the abolitionists had an argument for why that would not be the case, that without the Constitution's guarantees of recovering fugitive slaves and putting down insurrections, that the price of slaves would plummet and ultimately start to disappear. Yeah, not buying it. Uh, so, uh, look, on the one hand, Cascadia sounds appealing, um, although you, you just told me before we went on air that Southern California would not be uh, included, uh, in which case it sounds disastrous. Uh, but on the other hand, I hate to leave uh, the rest of the union to their own devices. Um, so for folks who don't know, tell us what Cascadia is, and I'm curious whether you're in favor of it. Well, I don't live in Cascadia, so it's, it's kind of not my not my decision to make. Um, and there are very there are many different versions of West Coast secession that, that could be enacted. You know, the New York Times said after the 2016 election that it made the Rocky Mountains look like a international border. So it could be everything west of the Rockies. Uh, and this has a long history. I go into this in the book about the idea that California and Oregon, um, this goes back to the 1840s, could form their own Pacific Republic. And a lot of people uh, preferred that option. Jefferson uh, Daniel Webster, even. Um, so it's it's definitely been uh, a constant threat throughout American history. The California flag says California Republic. You know, it's it's a, it's, it's sort of a standing threat. Yeah. Well, look, uh, putting out uh, aside the specific idea of Cascadia, if you put the West Coast together, California, Oregon, and Washington, it it would be formidable. Uh, it would be one of the largest economies in the world, top five. Uh, it would be wonderfully progressive. It, it sounds uh, um, appealing if you're a progressive. Uh, what do I want to deal with Mississippi and Alabama for? Um, and look, there's not, I don't know that you could find anyone tougher on Republican Party and Republican governors than me. And so I think those governors suck. And I think they've destroyed those states. And they keep asking for money from the rest of us uh, while pretending that they're against us taking welfare. So I loathe them. But Richard, if we did that, then imagine what happens to the poor people, you know, progressives, black people in Mississippi, Alabama. If the if the red states seceded, that would be a nightmare for minorities in those states, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Or as you say, if the blue states seceded, either way, disunion would certainly have even horrific consequences. I'm not in favor of of breaking up the union right now. It's 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 the book at least is a history of the concept. I do think that it needs to be a question that we ask ourselves. How much are we willing to give up to keep the union together? And and are we willing to see it break apart? I think this is kind of the question that we're always asking in our politics without really asking it. You know, the hashtag has gone around on Twitter, America or Trump. Well what does that really mean? If if the country chooses Trump what does that mean? The end of America? What What do we really mean by that? I, I, I think that we really mean disunion. And if so, we should talk explicitly and, and openly about that. And the other thing I'll say about that is, is, yes, there would be massive costs, including for very vulnerable people, if the union broke apart. But what if they make the rest of us into Mississippi? But that kind of seems to be the way things are going. And there's been this tradition, anytime a secessionist movement um, on, on the 
progressive left or something, you know, that doesn't really apply to 19th century terms, has gotten going. There's been this idea that if we can't save the country, maybe we can save our own little part of it and, and you know, keep, keep the idea of America going if the rest of the country gives up on our conception of it. So I don't think that it's impossible, uh, including from the left. Here's a fact pattern that uh, where it could happen. Trump wins re-election, uh, and he continues to do uh, authoritarian uh, tactics. Uh, the federal secret police spread out to all the states, start snatching up political opponents. I, I don't think that that's outlandish at all. In fact, I'd be really surprised if Trump didn't do that if he won re-election. In which, case, in which case, I can see the West Coast saying, what are we dealing with this BS for? No, no, uh, you're not going to send federal forces because they're no longer our our forces. And we're, I mean, if the West Coast seceded, it would be fantastically rich, uh, and 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 fantastically progressive. So uh, you know, that's that's an interesting fact pattern. But I don't want to leave the rest of the country to rot. I, so I I can't countenance it, and and I would. And I love the idea of a union, and so I can't stand that idea overall, but I, I can see it happening. But now let's talk about the logistics. Now, the more realistic uh, possibility is that uh, Trump loses, which is far, far, far more likely, and Republicans realize, oh, my God, we're never going to win another national election. There's a good chance Trump's going to lose North Carolina, Georgia, and Texas. Uh, and if he does, good night, Irene. The demographics have shifted enough that Republicans will very likely, if they stay in this form, never ever win another presidential election. So in that case, I can see all those red states going, no, no, uh, we tried uh, authoritarianism, we tried to get a fascist in there to end democracy uh, before we lost our demographic advantage, that didn't work, so we're going back to the idea of, of being on our own, um, so that we could oppress people to our pleasure in our own states. Now, in that fact pattern, how would they do it, and what would happen next? Honestly, I don't see that happening after the 2020 election, certainly not on the Republican side. I, I just don't think it would go that quickly. I do think that over the next decade, I, I can see Republicans, as they did under Obama. You know, we had Rick Perry famously saying, I love this union, I wouldn't want to give it up, but if the government, you know, becomes communist or something, we should we should secede. I think you'd see that again, certainly under a Biden presidency. And Within a, within a few years or election cycles, when they realize just how hopeless the situation is, perhaps they would pull the trigger. How would they do it? I don't know. We only have one instance in American history where somebody went through it, that there were plenty of threats, and that's that's what the book is about. Um, how would they do it? I, I really don't know. Usually, the way these movements would handle it would be some kind of convention of all these states who felt similarly and, and they'd get together and lay out a list of grievances, often often demands. And if they weren't met, you know, they, they would uh, they would secede. Okay, let's very much hope that it doesn't come to that. Uh, Richard Kreitner, uh, the book is Break It Up. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Jake. All right, back on the conversation. Uh, we've got another great guest for you guys, Jonathan Metzl. He is a professor and director of the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. That's going to be relevant to our discussion. He's also the author of Dying of Whiteness. That's also going to be relevant to our conversation. So, Jonathan, uh, welcome back. Great to be back. All right. So, um, during coronavirus, uh, we've had a, a number of issues. One is um, are the government's reaction, which has been abysmal. Uh, and the other is how, unfortunately, the disease 
has affected uh, minority communities so much more. Um, and you pretty much draw a, a correlation, not a correlation, but a, a connection there. Um, so let, let's talk about that. So uh, do you think the government's reaction, let's start with the simple part, has hurt blacks and Latinos in the country more? Um, top to bottom, yes. If you're talking about the federal government, absolutely. There were multiple times throughout this pandemic, and particularly in the beginning, when it became clear that, um, at least in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, and, and through, through now, that, that minoritized communities in this country were, were going to be at higher risk. There were multiple um, um, you know, times from the very beginning where the government could have said, we're going to protect everyone, including the people who are the most vulnerable. So in the beginning of the pandemic, that could have meant um, doing, being much faster about releasing data that showed that black and brown communities were at higher risk and getting sick and dying more, um, all the way to decisions not to expand the Affordable Care Act uh, and expand uh, Medicaid expansion in particular in 14 states that would have protected a lot of, uh, a lot of minority communities um, to everything that's happening now where the government is basically deploying troops um, for protests and not deploying troops to help with the help with the pandemic, you know, and and mass produce PPEs and all these things. So top to bottom, I would say um, it's it's been a, a real missed opportunity, and, and people are suffering and dying as a result. So in the past uh, on the show, we've talked about why uh, coronavirus is affecting blacks and Latinos more in this country. Uh, including uh, one of the big factors, not the only factor, is that they have more of the essential jobs. And so um, a huge percentage of coronavirus cases in California are Latinos. Uh, and so uh, is that part of the reason that you think uh, Donald Trump has taken this less seriously? That if, that if it had hit Mar-a-Lago uh, harder, that he would have taken it more seriously? Well, I think that was the that was the narrative in the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, it it kind of seemed like this is a black and brown thing, and it, and it was not for any genetic or biological reason. It was because, as as you say, um, uh, minoritized communities often have jobs that put them in the path of the virus, or they don't have health insurance, they don't have access to um, democratized health information or PPEs or all these other factors. And so, I think he was able to spin it that way in the beginning. Um, and, and that led to a bunch of different things. Certainly it led to a lot of um, white uh, people thinking, well, this isn't going to affect us. And so this resistance to, to masks came out of that. Um, and it also led to the refusal, I think, really a, another catastrophic error to demand building up health infrastructure. In other words, if you're in a pandemic, you want to build the institutions that are going to help the most people, uh, like health insurance, for example, or hospitals or PPE manufacturing. So the fact that this was able to be spun as it's just a black and brown thing, I think, created this kind of kind of laissez-faire attitude among particular white populations, which in part is why we're in this in this predicament right now. Yeah. And, you know, obviously ignorance is a huge part of it. And the Republican Party is more ignorant. Um, they they don't believe in science and uh, as much as Democrats. It's just reality. Uh, so um, now in terms of uh, the policy actions that Trump has taken, that's interesting as well. You wrote about how um, their efforts to kill the Affordable Care Act in the courts uh, could be obviously supernova relevant uh, in the middle of this pandemic. Well, I think, you know, if, there, if there's a pandemic, there are two things you want. You want people to have access to health care 
health insurance and not worry about, um, am I going to go broke if I go to the doctor? Um, because when people start to get sick, you want you want them to have access to this information. You don't want them to have to keep going to work sick and spreading the, spreading the virus and, and factors like that. And then also, in this country, we have health insurance that's linked to your employer. So when people start losing their jobs, you want to have some kind of safety net so people aren't going to go bankrupt. And uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, in, in March, when this really started to hit, there was a tool that the that the government had, which was, again, the Affordable Care Act, um, which, you know, it, it certainly has had its problems, but it is a national health program. Uh, and it is a national health program that should have been expanded in the beginning uh, of the pandemic to protect people. Um, red states should have expanded Medicaid. Um, and an important thing about the Affordable Care Act also is that even though the Affordable Care Act has had some mixed results in some areas, it was highly effective at closing the racial health gaps in health insurance, particularly in blue states. Um, so, um, for example, when the Affordable Care Act was you know, first brought into being, um, 33% of Latino populations didn't have health insurance, and that number dropped to about 18%. Um, 25% of African-American populations didn't have health insurance, and that number fell precipitately, precipitately as well. So here was a chance to build on those and give people, including black and brown people, health insurance. And instead, during a pandemic, the Trump administration has done exactly the opposite. They've doubled down by making statements that they want to kill the Affordable Care Act with no backup plan. And they're supporting this ludicrous case that's going to be in front of the Supreme Court in, in the fall, which is from California and Texas, to, to kill the whole thing with no backup plan. So it is really catastrophic. It would bring these gains in health insurance uh, to a halt and reverse them. And it would disproportionately affect uh, poor, poor people, including poor white people, but also poor, poor black and brown people. So, uh, Jonathan, what do you think would happen if the, affordable, if the court struck down the Affordable Care Act? So let's say that in October they say, OK, it's gone. Uh, what happens? Well, we know. I mean, that was the data I looked at in my book, Dying of Whiteness. Um, more people would die. <laughs> more people would. Um, I, I don't mean to laugh. It's just it's so obvious that, that, that that's what showed what, what the data shows is that people would not be able to access health care. Um, people would not be able to pay for medications. Um, there's no mystery about this. So I think what would happen, especially because from the beginning, Trump has said, I want to kill the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, where's the beef? What, what's the backup plan there? There isn't one. And so I think what you would see is dramatic rises in uninsurance, dramatic rises in medical bankruptcy, dramatic rises in people not going to the doctor when they're sick. So it would be terrible from a pandemic standpoint. It would be terrible from a, from a financial standpoint. And as data from, from my book, Dying of Whiteness, shows, it would also lead to more illness, more death, shorter life expectancy. And again, I just can't even begin to tell you how unambiguous that data is. But the minute you start cutting people off the rolls, they stop going to the doctor, health insurance becomes more expensive, more funds go to emergency rooms and less to the system. And ultimately what you see is, is falls in life expectancy, particularly for low-income people um, of, of all races. Jonathan, what do you think is the main uh, driver of that for the Republicans? So in the beginning, they didn't want the Affordable Care Act because they were being paid by the drug companies, the insurance companies, uh, et cetera. And they're just serving their donors as they always do. Um, but now those companies have gotten used to this uh, regimen and it's not so bad for them. That was basically the deal that Obama cut. I'll let you keep robbing us blind as long as we cover more people. Uh, and so um, 
what's left other than stubbornness and we hate Obama? Why do they want to uh, go after Affordable Care Act so bad? Well, part of it is just plain old structural racism, as I show in my book. I do a lot of interviews and this idea that there's a program that might help might help me, but it might help other people also. So part of it is they're playing to, to what they think is uh, this kind of this racial assumption. Um, and also, as, I mean, you can just see the, the war on blue cities right now that's happening. Um, there's, you know, Los Angeles is a great example, or New York City or Chicago. If they destroy the Affordable Care Act, the places that would get hurt the worst uh, would be blue cities and states with large minority populations. And so it would continue this war on blue cities and states. Um, the flip side, as I again showed in the book, is that a lot of poor white people uh, would die also. But I think it, it continues this, this almost this like um, Civil War 2.0 kind of thing. So it's, it's an ideology more than it is a financial um, thing, uh, decision. Um, so I think that's part of it. Um, and again, just probably the worst one of the worst possible statements um, you, you know you could make in a pandemic is to say certain citizens citizens lives matter and others don't but that's what people are protesting about now and and and, and so really that's the war is, is who, whose lives matter and and this affordable care act unfortunately has become part of part of that bigger debate yeah and and for republicans it's not just racism it's also they're just not in it for poor people so uh, you're uh, black, brown, white, they just don't care about you. Uh, their donors are all incredibly wealthy, and and that's the crowd they care about. Now, last thing, and it's really important, Jonathan, under your logic, um, is it an imperative that we pass Medicare for all? Because the, the folks who are hurt the most are poor, the middle class, et cetera, and under Medicare for all, they would all be covered. I think we need a national something. Um, for people who know my work know, and I just had a piece in U.S. News last week about this, I'm a big fan of the Affordable Care Act just because it seemed like a reasonable compromise between public and private interests. Um, and I think the Affordable Care Act would have led to a national health care program. And the most important part about the Affordable Care Act is it's already the law. And so I, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Medicaid, ex, uh, of, of Medicaid expansion everywhere, and I think it would have gotten us to the same place in a way, um, and it would have kept all the shareholders at the table. Um, uh, so we'll, we'll have to see, honestly, what happens. I mean, right now, I'm, I'm not going to, and I should not make a hair joke, uh, but I'm not going to split hairs about this, you know. Um, I, I would say that um, that really the issue is, we need some kind of national national system, right? And 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 what what we call it um, is 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 really immaterial at this point. We're facing, you know, look at just look at the death and devastation of this virus. And so, however we can get there the fastest, I think, is the better the better way. Um, and you mentioned before, you know, I think this is something that poor white people should be protesting for also. You know, either expand Medicaid, Medicare for all. We have to do something that's the opposite of what the Trump administration is suggesting. Yeah. And so, look, we beat up on Trump and he more than deserves it and the Republican Party. But let's not forget that uh, the corruption of the Democratic Party, too, because there's no reason we shouldn't have some sort of national system, single payer, Medicare for all, whatever it is. And people are dying and they know it. But they also get donor money from insurance companies and drug companies. And that's why we don't have it. And a lot more Americans die, especially in the middle of this pandemic. All right. Jonathan Metzl, uh, speaking truth to power. Appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. We, uh, it was great to have you. Likewise. Let's keep talking.